Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast. This is Sully, and with me, I have another uh, contributor to the new Leiji Matsumoto book that was co-edited by Helen and Darren. I have Jonathan Tarbox with me. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. And Jonathan's chapter specifically focuses on Leiji Matsumoto, the hero's journey, and his series of one-shot manga, The Cockpit. So Jonathan graduated from Oberlin College. He did graduate work at the University of Chicago and Indiana University. He has been an editor for DC Comics and Comics, and he now teaches at the University of California at San Diego and at California State University. So very accredited in this uh, kind of work. That makes me sound great. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I am in academia too, so I know how it goes. So Jonathan, what got you into Leiji Matsumoto's work? Well, I'd always known about Leiji Matsumoto's work because he's just one of those seminal artists whose work is so pervasive that if you know anything about manga from manga and anime, but specifically manga from the 20th century, you can't not know about his work. It, you know, his, the, 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 so, the many things he did are just so important, so influential, and that's demonstrated by the fact that they keep getting rebooted even now by, say, later animators who want to redo Captain Harlock and redo uh, Battleship Yamato. Your chapter in particular actually does not focus on the the Leijiverse and his space operas, but instead you decided to choose a series of one-shot manga that he did that focuses on the Pacific theater in World War II. What exactly drew you to that particular part of his work? What makes that series, again, as you mentioned, it's been put together in a couple different series. It's basically the same series, but they divide it up into different numbers of volumes depending on the edition. But it's about uh, anywhere from 12 to 18 volumes. As you said, he just started doing individual stories. And it only later got put together into that series called The Cockpit. Now, what's amazing about it is, well, several things. First, it isn't part of the Leijiverse. And it's so easy to look at some of the great manga artists and think everything they do is just about in outer space and fantasy and has nothing to do with the real world. Whereas, in fact, Leiji Matsumoto and many other manga artists of his generation were in World War II and saw some of the absolutely, with their own eyes, experienced some of the most devastating impacts of World War II. Um, Shigeru Mizuki, the author of Gegege no Taro, another great series, got his right arm blown off in the war. A lot of people in America don't realize that he had to draw all his manga with his left hand because he was missing an entire arm from the war. Anybody who's seen Grave of the Fireflies knows the impact of the war on that generation of of artists. So I liked that he was drawing on, yes, some of the stories in the cockpit are a little sci-fi, a little fantasy-oriented, but a lot of them are just plain, full-on war stories from people who actually lived through these experiences. And I thought this would show a whole side of Leiji Matsumoto that would completely inform and give a new perspective on his other works that are more famous. And I didn't know that much about him when I started reading it, and I was amazed when I did. I'm so glad I actually, I feel lucky that I ended up getting to do this topic for the book instead of more tried and true topics like um, Star Blazers, as we call it, or Captain Harlock, because people already know that one. I feel like I got to see a whole side of Leiji Matsumoto that gave me a much deeper respect for his work. And I want to point out for our listeners that this this series of works that we're calling the cockpit has not, the, the manga itself has not been released in English. The closest we have is in uh, Frederick Schultz's manga manga. There is a short uh, snippet that has been translated from it. But these works are pretty much entirely in the original Japanese that you're working with. So you're yes. working with the direct texts when you analyze them. And right. one thing you do that I think is very important is you point out 
the sort of uh, differences between the Western notion of the hero's journey and the hero that is defined by Joseph Campbell, who if you know anything about literary studies, you know that Joseph Campbell's uh, The Hero's Journey is one of the sort of urtexts of literary analysis, particularly for folk tales and, and classical works. And instead, you, you put them within a framework of Ivan Morris's The Nobility of Failure, which uh, is a very... Japanese perspective on what makes the, the sort of classical hero, and you apply that lens onto Matsumoto's work, specifically the cockpit, but towards the end of your chapter, you kind of highlight how this can be something that can be read in all of Matsumoto's protagonists. Exactly why it makes it interesting, because it's not just these stories of World War II Japanese soldiers, some of them actually do begin to overlap a little bit into the Legiverse. Again, that's what makes the Legiverse so amazing is that he keeps almost everything he's ever done is somehow connected to something else he's done in these feedback loops, sometimes even contradicting, but there are like the progenitors of Captain Harlock and some of his cronies are in the cockpit as World War II or even, you know, World War I soldiers. So it's in there, it's connected, it's not a separate thing and yet it is also very very tied down to actual battles and actual historical events in world war ii in the pacific theater at the same time like he mentions specific places he writes about specific battles that are historically accurate and he well i don't want to unless we want to get off on a tangent there's the whole tangent of tech which you may have seen in my in my chapter and that too you know the japanese love of technology he just absolutely in minute detail recreates the the World War II machinery in the same way that Ghibli loves to recreate World War I biplanes in his animation. So for a little bit of context, we should probably describe the two versions of the hero's journey. So for Par Campbell, we have this idea of the hero starts out, uh, the world is in a sort of stasis, the world is inherently good, and something, some force, a tyrant, a villain... A force of nature comes to corrupt the world and make it into a place of darkness. There is evil. The hero ventures forth to stop this darkness, and he defeats the evil. And if he is defeated, if the hero is destroyed or killed in the battle, uh, that is not without some reward. That his death will bring stasis back into the world. That something uh, will result from his death that will aid the people he is trying to protect. That ultimately, the, the story is the world is good. Something comes to corrupt it, the hero stops that corruption, and the world is brought back to the status quo. Now, Ivan Morris, so I think we should also point out, was one of uh, Mishima's earliest translators, uh, has a very different theory on how this plays out, specifically in Japanese culture. And I wonder if you could kind of touch on Morris's theories as it, as it applies to the cockpit and Matsumoto in a more general sense. Okay, I would love to. Finding this out was what made this work this writing this chapter turned into an absolute passion project for me. Morris's um, idea, I don't want to say theory because I think he does a good enough job of demonstrating that it, it goes beyond theory and it, you know, he, he's got some actual proof to his ideas as far as literary criticism goes, where there is an image, there is an archetype, let me say, in Japanese culture, not just Japanese literature, but Japanese culture of the hero. And it's almost the exact opposite of everything you just described in Joseph Campbell's ideas, where the world is not inherently good. The world is inherently corrupt. Some people say that this reflects some of the Buddhist influences in Japanese culture. But the hero is pure, and the hero is good, and because of his very purity... When he goes off to fight against the corruption and evil, he's actually fighting against the natural order of the universe instead of for the natural order of the universe. And the way a lot of these stories go in this archetype is that the hero first has some victory, because if he doesn't have a victory, then there's no height from which to fall. The hero then reaches a sort of a peak of power and popularity, and then the hero is defeated and it's actually the hero's own purity and refusal to compromise 
that leads the evil forces of society and the world and politics to defeat him. And there is, and this is the point that you were setting me up for, thank you very much, there is no tangible good benefit from his sacrifice. In fact, in many times the world is, le- is, is left worse off from the struggle that the hero engages in. And however the hero is remembered in culture as this pure thing that is just somehow too beautiful for this world and then dies with no tangible benefit. And you relate that specifically to Sakura or uh, Oka, the the cherry blossom, this idea of the cherry blossom will only bloom for a few weeks at a time and then it very quickly dies off. And this sort of intangible ephemeral quality is then sort of metonymically linked to samurai and and traditional Japanese warriors and that it is better to die nobly and beautifully than it is to grow old and and perhaps die of a natural cause where your death is meaningless. The the void, facing the void is not the issue, it's how you stand against the void, how you fall to it that is the beauty. So you are going to die, but would you rather die purposelessly or would you rather die beautifully? Yes, I would avoid the word purposefully because would you rather die beautifully and purely? Because again, usually the heroes in these stories do die sort of, one could say, purposelessly. So it's not about purpose, it's about purity, if we were to really distill it down to its simplest element. thing I find interesting, so the three one-shots from the cockpit that you focused on are also the ones that are adapted for the OVA. You go in the order that they were published as manga. The Sonic Boom Squadron, Night of the Iron Dragon, and Slipstream. And one thing I find particularly interesting is the sort of juxtaposition between uh, the contemporary and the modern in these stories. I know that you highlight the fact that in uh, Sonic Boom Squadron, that the the pilot's the times he goes up to go and perform the kamikaze attacks are sort of prefaced by a woman that we later learn he knows in some capacity playing a koto, which is a traditional Japanese yes. stringed instrument. And there's this sort of juxtaposition of the mess hall, the the, the fighter pilots, the, the modern or contemporary technology of the 1940s with this traditional setting that could very well harken back to this sort of a warring states period aesthetic. And you yeah. mentioned this contradiction, or a seeming contradiction, between Matsumoto and many mangaka writ large, their fascination with technology mm-hmm. and machinery with the sort of bucolic ideals of, of the failed noble hero. Absolutely correct. Part of this, it's a, it's a very interesting, um, almost, I don't want to say self-contradictory, but there's definitely a tension, an unresolved tension in this archetype, where on the one hand... The artists and the storytellers are looking back on this perfect, pure, ancient world, and yet they're absolutely fascinated with the modern world of technology, and yet the modern world of technology is exactly the catalyst for things like the war. You know, technology 
made the airplanes, which were beautiful. Technology made the airplanes that dropped the bombs, which were destructive and horrible. And technology, the, some people would argue the ultimate form of technology is the nuclear bomb, which it bears repeating. The Japanese are the only people in the world who have ever actually experienced being victims of a nuclear bombing. And I think that's interesting, too, because this takes place all within the Pacific theater of World War II. And yes. World War II is one of the the great story settings of the 20th century and onward. And especially for a Western view, we tend to see it as the Allied powers versus the Axis powers. There is good, yes. there is evil. And but good in, wins. And good wins. And we wins. win because we're good. You know, that's, and, so that's the image we've all been given from every, almost every Hollywood movie and British film about the war we've ever seen. And one thing you highlight is that Matsumoto, uh, going with this idea of, of the failed noble hero, does not necessarily villainize the opposing side of the war, that we, we see the Americans and we see the Allied forces and we get to see the side of the war from their perspective. And we do not, Matsumoto does not frame them as these brutes, these these villains, these people trying to oppose them rather than they are simply an opposite side of a, of a perspective. And I, exactly. I wonder how you square this with our Western understandings of both the war as an actual historical event and the war as the setting for films, television, pulp stories, and things like that from both a Western and a Japanese perspective. I think one of the ways that American literary and popular culture has been framed is we Americans went out and we tamed the untamed West and we built it and we made it a better place and we built a nation. Great. World War II, we went out and fought the bad enemy and we're the good guys and we won. Basically, those two, both of those two representations are summed up in two words, John Wayne. Name 90% of every movie John Wayne did was either a Western or a World War II story. And they're both about the hero in the white hat who goes off and is so intrinsically good that he can't possibly lose. The Japanese version of the story is just so totally different. And because of that, all of the things Matsumoto shows in his stories and the stories that are referenced also in Ivan Morris's uh, book have antecedents that go back a thousand years. So neither of these guys made these images up. They were both accessing a archetype that already existed. And in all of those archetypes, it was never about the... Sometimes the enemy was bad, but he wasn't intrinsically evil. And hating the enemy was a lack of purity. And remember, the hero, the, fable, the, the noble failed hero, had to be pure. Hatred of the enemy was not a sign of purity. So there was generally not a whole lot of case of hating the enemy. It's also, if we think about it, it's also true that for the vast majority of Japanese culture up until World War I, Japanese were fighting Japanese. Except for the times when they fought the Mongols during the, you know, the infamous Kazikame incidents where the, the winds came down and swept the Mongols out of the ocean. In fact, they almost didn't fight them very much because the Mongols got shipwrecked because of, the, because of the typhoons. So it wasn't even really a battle that the Japanese themselves won. So the point is, Japanese were fighting Japanese for the vast majority of their, hero, for, of their history. And it becomes a lot more difficult, I think, to demonize your enemy when your enemy might be your cousins or might be the people, and they might switch sides and join your side. There's not as much psychological need or function for hating the enemy so absolutely completely. So yes, there is absolutely no, there's no hate of the enemy. And Matsumoto very clearly portrays the Western characters in his stories as very, very sympathetic. And they are often sympathetic to the Japanese inside the inside the, the the realm of the story they're like hey we're all just following orders we're fighting because we have to but i don't hate that guy over there i don't want to destroy you know i don't i don't want to see him burn in hell we're just fighting because that's what we have to do so yes there is absolutely not a hatred of the enemy but that story that um that element has antecedents going back a thousand years 
And going with that, you also mentioned the sort of confusion that people both now and during World War II had towards the kamikaze pilots. Like what would make, what creates the sort of psychology for someone to want to become essentially a suicide attacker, uh, knowing that their own life is going to be the cost for the actions that they take. And you, again, root this in the idea of there is no hatred of the enemy, that that the death that you that you obtain, as long as it is noble, as long as it is pure, outweighs the actual cost of your life. You mentioned that we have actual last will and testaments and letters from kamikaze pilots thanking their parents for giving them life, uh, not viewing what they're about to do with any sort of trepidation or fear. And I find it interesting that we, we mention these things because we see similar thought patterns and sort of character arcs appearing in, in Matsumoto's space operas, which are very, very uh, influenced and sort of uh, driven by the same story patterns as the things that actually occurred during World War II, the sort of narratives that people who participated in the Pacific theater actually sort of built for themselves. One of the many reasons that manga and anime fans love manga and anime is because it presents such a radically different and a radically more nuanced vision of the world than American comics and American films and American animation has tended to do. And one of the things I hear most often talking to anime fans that makes them like the really long space operas is that even the guys on the other side, the quote-unquote bad guys, are always shown to have reasons for what they do. Whereas if you think about, I know it may be an extreme example, but American you know, G.I. Joe cartoons, the bad guys are just bad. And they like being bad because it's bad, and they just want to be bad to be bad. And, you're, and it's almost two-dimensional, frankly. Um, that was true in the early days of DC Comics. Batman and Superman's enemies, they were bad. Why? Because they just were bad, and they wanted to be bad. And because of that, they were always a little thin. Whereas in anime, way, anime and manga, way back even in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, in the work of people like Matsumoto, even then the bad guys, or the, I don't even want to call them the bad guys, the, the opponents were always shown to have a reason for the, what they believed. And they were always shown to believe that they themselves were actually the good guys. I think the American fans and the European fans found that more compelling because that's what it's like in real life. When we're dealing even now with people who believe the opposite of us or somehow on, they think they're just as right as we think we're right. Now, you can go on various arguments, but you know, what does right really mean? But the point is, everyone believes that what they do has a purpose, what they do is right. And anime and manga has always reflected that in a way that American pop culture has only recently come to do. When I was reading your chapter, I was thinking about, you know, not a Matsumoto work, but how well that sort of plays out in something like Legend of the Galactic Heroes, where absolutely we have these it's not two, just Matsumoto. Yeah. We have these two diametrically opposed sides, and yet we, there is no clear cut bad guy in big no, scare quotes. It is simply two sides of, of a confrontation that we're we are asked as viewers mm -hmm. to sort of uh understand in a more nuanced way. I was also thinking exactly. about, this is one of my pet anime interests, but I'm very into the Time Book on series, and every episode ends with the, the goofy bad guys being blown up in a mushroom cloud, and they fail in these spectacular ways, and yet they keep on going. There's this feeling of the underdog that is always kind of clawing itself back up, and it's, it's not the defeat that matters. There is no true... The, the evil is vanquished. It's simply, it will come back up another time. And that even plays out in something like a Goofy Kids cartoon or Legend of the Galactic Heroes, that they are not, they, they may be villains in the sense that they are the diametric opposition of the protagonist, but they are, like you said, they are, they are opponents. They are people that we, with the protagonist, have to face rather than see as the source of, of corruption. The corruption is already there in the world to begin with. They are merely acting upon it. Exactly, exactly. There's lots of manga, lots of anime that, that shows that very, very, that very principle. I'm now getting into the new great big hit, uh, Demon Slayer, Kimetsu no Yaiba. And the creators always make it clear, even when the hero 
kills a demon and the demons are you know they they feast on human flesh they're you know pretty well a definition of bad and yet all of them were at one times human and as the demon slayer kills the demons and when they're dying they tend to remember back when they were human and they remember being not evil and you always sometimes get a little nuance if you can see why they turned evil like somebody abused them or somebody did something bad they make a real point that even as the demon is dying, a demon who's killed hundreds of people, you see that they came from something that was not intrinsically evil. They're not evil in a sui generis way. They're not evil just for the sake of being evil. Something happened where they were normal and they ended up becoming evil. And then the, the demon slayer often you know, wishes them a happy rebirth in heaven. And it's that kind of nuance that I think a lot of us anime and manga fans are drawn to that is often sadly lacking in Western pop culture. I mean, they do say that history is written by the victors. Yes. Um, and we were the victors of, of World War II. And perhaps uh, of all the Allied powers, we benefited the most from mm -hmm. the victory um, during the war. And the thing yes. that I find interesting is how that reverberates in Japanese culture because Japan, Italy, and Germany, the three powers of the Axis, mm -hmm. had very, very different reactions towards the loss. loss. And I find how Japan sort of recreated itself. So we have we have the, the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century, we yeah. have the Taisho period, we have the, the sort of quote-unquote modernization of Japan that happens. Yeah. And then we have the post-war economic sort of the great miracle. Maker, and, yeah. And Matsumoto and and Mizuki and all of these other sort of foundational creators of, yeah. of manga, they are born of that. And then the generation that comes after them takes so heavily from them that yes. perhaps Absolutely. more than Americans have. Like, we, yeah. we still draw from these World War II sources. We are making comic book movies for comics that were made mm. uh, anytime specifically to comment upon World War II. Yeah. Um, but I find that we have less of a connection to it than Japan does, which, again, because its sort of foundational texts are so heavily based in that, it seems like these yeah. themes repeat in a much more obvious way than perhaps they do in American media. That's absolutely true. That's a very good analysis of it. The other thing that, of course, is true of of manga as well as all Japanese pop cultures, they can draw on a cultural history over a thousand years old. If America wants to do anything more than, say, 225 years, we have to go back to basically borrowed culture from Europe. But Japan has its own culture that goes back, you know, well over a thousand, you know, one could argue 2,000 years. And some of the stories in Ivan Morris's book that are reflected in Matsumoto's work are some of the earliest of the great Japanese samurai stories. They've been enshrined in kabuki, in bunraku puppets, in no theater. And that's where the original versions of those stories are. So this, this archetype that we're discussing goes back very, very far in Japanese culture. And they don't need to construct it i mean it's they're drawing on a source and matsumoto is drawing on this very source exactly as he is writing stories about world war ii and that's why you were talking about the kamikaze pilots um the kamikaze pilots themselves in their letters to their families were referencing the very stories that ivan morris is referencing about samurai from a thousand years they're saying i feel like i can't think of any name offhand. I feel like that great samurai who fought this great battle and lost, and lost no, and was pure and noble and lost and was completely vanquished, and nothing good came of his struggle. The the kamikaze pilots were consciously drawing on this cultural archetype, and Matsumoto is reflecting this cultural archetype in his stories. And they knew, and the thing. Oh, here's the other thing that's kind of important. They knew they were losing, and they knew that the vast majority of kamikaze attacks. We thought most of us would think that they were happening during the entire war. Not true. Happened a little bit at the beginning of the war, but it really wasn't until they already knew they were losing, and knew that there wasn't going to be any possibility of victory. That was such an impossible thing for Westerners to wrap their heads around. 
as certainly during the war. Uh, one of the Japanese things is it would be, you know, you don't, you don't get taken captive. Get taken captive alive, one of the worst things you could possibly do. And because they didn't believe in doing it themselves, they didn't really respect it when Westerners did it. The Western concept is if I survive, I live to fight another day. That wasn't the Japanese archetype at all. One of the things that I love about reading these Matsumoto stories is, again, you get to see this from their point of view, from the Japanese point of view, which is so completely different from the Western point of view. And he explains it in a way that I feel like I'm like, OK, I get it. It makes this makes sense. I understand why they thought like they did. I understand the one, the story in the Knights of the Iron Dragon, basically the the end of the story is these two Japanese guys are riding on a motorcycle into enemy fire. They know they can't possibly get – they're trying to get back to a Japanese base, air base, that's already been overtaken by the Americans, and they know it. And yet they're still trying to get back there, and they know they're going to die, and they know it's impossible for them to possibly survive. And yet somehow the act of doing this was to them an act of purity. It would be harder to – it's hard to describe this anymore than without going to actually read the stories, and it's quite detailed. But it's absolutely fascinating, and all of this work gets – all of these images get reflected into Matsumoto's space, space opera's work and are reflected in other anime and manga as well. And one thing I find interesting about that is that when you mentioned they reference these these figures in their letters, that mm -hmm. these figures, though many of them were real people who existed mm -hmm. and who we have historical record of, they are also somewhat folkloric and mythological in that the stories that are told about them sort of become these grand epic narratives. Mythologized. Yes. And so we have the actual kamikaze pilots, uh, the Oka pilots, mythologizing these historical figures, and then they themselves become mythologized within the work of Matsumoto in his space opera. So there's this, this cycle yes. of building upon the real history to create these, these larger narratives that though they may contradict each other, may, though they may be inaccurate historically, they, the important thing is not whether or not they are true to history, it is the emotion and the feeling that they conjure up within the, the viewer of the, of the narrative or within the person who believes that they are enacting a form of it in their own lives. You just summed that up really well. I should write that down and use it in my next book. <laughs> no, I love, love, I mean, that was it. The way you put that, that was just exactly, that was exactly right. Um, what I think most of us do in creating our vision of the world inside our heads is we're not necessarily historically accurate, but we take, we take what happened and we take the experiences and we give them meaning that allows us then to use as a map of moving through the world. The map that the Japanese were using, that they, for, they both use the map and create the map, that map was this story of the noble failed hero. Where do you see Matsumoto's work fitting into this sort of this sort of framework of this guide that that will further these narratives, this map? Where do you see like Harlock or or Galaxy Express or any work in the Lejiverse perhaps going forward? Like do you believe that there will be people who draw upon the Lejiverse to sort of map actual historical narratives of the world and not just uh, stories in manga or television or anime? I say the way most of us live our lives, the way that most of us create our own headspace, the difference between fact and fiction is almost irrelevant. So therefore, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about fact or fiction. You know, many of us in the West, we think about when we think about how are we going to do this, how are we going to do that, what, what, is, what has meaning in the world, we're thinking about Batman and Superman as much as we're thinking about George Washington. And George Washington got heavily mythologized in his own, not in his own lifetime, but very quickly after. The whole, we, you know, everybody knows that that chopped down the cherry tree, I cannot tell, that didn't actually happen. That was a deliberate mythologization, is, there, is mythologization a word? <laughs> um, mythologizing. Uh, by one of his earliest biographers. The point is, we do the same thing with historical figures. We merge them together. We make stories that may or may not be true, but the stories have meaning for us. 
And in that sense, I believe what Matsumoto has written in the entire Leijiverse, if you include the cockpit, which some people would, is he's laid out a history that is completely, it both draws on and recreates Japanese culture in such a way that people are definitely going to keep drawing on it. Creative artists in Japan are going to keep drawing on it for certainly the next generation or two. He will not be forgotten soon. His work is just too massive. It's too influential. It's too well known. There are still people rebooting his, redoing anime versions of his works. Le voilà, Albator, le capitaine corsaire. Il revient, Albator, pour les enfants de la terre. Le voilà, Albator, le capitaine corsaire. Il revient, Albator, pour les enfants de la terre. Avec son bandeau sur l'œil, avec sa joue palafrée, avec le plus grand des cœurs, Albator s'est embarqué sur le pont de son vaisseau, frappé dans sa cape noire. Il nous revient bien plus beau qu'il était dans nos mémoires. Voilà, voilà, Albator, le capitaine corsaire. Il revient, Albator. When Helen approached you, Helen and Darren approached you to work on this book, did you have a goal in mind for what you wanted to say about Matsumoto, given that this is the first heavy English resource in print about his, his life and work from a critical perspective? Did you have a goal in mind? Because you, you mentioned that you sort of landed on this this topic for your chapter um, a little I guess I I don't know if I could say haphazardly, but it was something that you sort of fell into. Uh, where do you sort of see your work in a broader context of, of Matsumoto or anime scholarship in general? Haphazard and fell into are exactly the correct words to describe how I got connected with this. We were I was discussing with Helen and Darren. It's like, okay, everybody's going to do a different chapter or you're going to do a chapter on a different thing. Um, and... I was discussing with Darren, well, let's, what's something that's different? What's something that nobody else has done? And it was actually Darren who suggested that I look at the cockpit, which I will, ad- I will honestly admit, when I was assigned it, I'd never heard of it. And I'd never heard of the cockpit. Of course, I'd heard of Leiji Matsumoto, but I'd never heard of this one. So being assigned this topic, first I start reading the stories. And my original analysis of the stories were kind of like you know the old-fashioned World War II American version, like, wow, why would anybody do something this crazy? This does not, none of this makes sense. And then I started researching it, and I ran across even Morris's book, and I, and I ran across other materials about the samurai in World War II, because I was just trying to get some historical background, and that's when I discovered that Morris had already laid out. Morris never mentions Matsumoto, by the way. He doesn't, I don't think he even knew Matsumoto's work existed. He he wrote the book in 1973, um, not long after Mishima died. So I don't think he was aware that Le- Le- he may not have been aware that Leiji Matsumoto's work existed. But it so completely unlocked the meaning of Matsumoto's stories to me that, uh, oh my God, it's amazing to me that Ivan Morris hadn't read this, but it was proof to me that Morris was right. Because that here is a like a, a 18 volume example of everything Morris was talking about. Mind you, I do want to say this: I focused on the on the on the Ivan Morris um, noble failed hero idea because it's so pervasive. But there are so many stories in the cockpit. You know, there's every of the 18 volumes has six to ten different one shot stories, and there are so many different stories in there. So there's so much more to it than just this, although this, I would say, was the major theme. But there's just so much more to unpack. I now wish I had the wherewithal to write an entire book just on this series. Sadly, I can't imagine anybody would buy a book just on Leiji Matsumoto's The the Cockpit. But if I was independently wealthy and didn't have to worry about making money, I would definitely go off and write that book. I shouldn't be saying this because I'm afraid I might be giving somebody else ideas that they'll steal. So... 
Well, like we mentioned, right now, uh, there is very little of the cockpit in English. It's one of those uh, huge expansive works. Basically none. Yes. It's one of those huge expansive works of one of the great writers of manga, and it's, you know, untranslated as... Uh, I, I think about that thing about, oh, well, most of the films of the silent era are just, you know, non-existent now. They've been burned somewhere. And it's like, well, most of the great works of anime and manga are, you know, just not in English because they were not considered marketable for whatever reason or uh, they couldn't get the rights. So uh, if you wanted to translate it, I'm sure there's a market for that. And then you could possibly uh, write your book as a supplement to that. It's like, I've translated uh, The Cockpit and now you can buy my book on The Cockpit. Well, um, what makes me different than a lot of my scholar and manga fan friends is that I actually worked in the business. As you mentioned, I worked in Cormix. I was one of the first um, foreigners to ever work as an editor inside a Japanese manga company. And then I worked for uh, a year in DC Comics. And then in America, I ran Arashi Productions, where I was basically freelancing for Viz and other American, Western manga publishers. And I am very, 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 having done that, I am much more aware of how the business works than a lot of other scholars and fans do. Like, I know why decisions are made based purely on business. I can even give you one example right now. There is a, let's say you have this great series, and it's going along and it's a hit series, and the, but it's been going on for a while. Many of you probably know that manga artists are working, you know, 70, 80, 90 hour weeks. They get burned out really badly. And they say, okay, I want to finish the series. And the editors will say, no, you have to keep going. And they do it as a deliberate, per, for deliberate reason. Why is that? Because if the series ends while it's still popular, it's like the Beatles breaking up after Abbey Road. They broke up at the height of their career. People for the last, for the following 50 years, the people are like, oh, we want the Beatles to get back together. When are the Beatles going to get back together? If you make the manga artist keep going after he's burned out, he'll start to suck. And if the story actually gets worse and gets bad, then they quit, then the fans don't complain. The point is, I got told this by one of the most famous editors, who was my boss, in Japan. Uh, he said, I mean, it's like this deliberate business practice to manipulate the business. Basically, in this case, so just so that the fans don't um, complain, oh, we want that great series to make a comeback. There are other stories I can tell you where we're just pure on business decisions. Well, here's another one. If, if, you're, if, you, if you want to get off the academic side and talk a little bit about the business side... The, a lot of the Japanese publishers would get audience feedback because they have a weekly series. These magazines, most of them would be coming out weekly. And every week they'd put in a little response card in Shonen Jump or one of the other magazines. And they'd get responses back like, which story do you like the best? All right, well, you got like in Shonen Jump, you could have as many as 20, 30 different stories every week by different artists. And they would put the audience feedback survey. Which was your most favorite? Which was your least favorite? And whoever was the least favorite would just get dropped. Like, you've now got, congrats, sorry, Fred, you've got, sorry, uh, Shigeru, you've got two weeks to wrap up your series. Your series is canceled. It's just not popular. Purely for business reasons. There are some series that just kind of end very abruptly. Why? Because they just lost popularity. There are there others that just kept going on and on and on because they were popular. There were also audience feedback questions about, uh, well, this series is good, but there's something wrong with it. There are sometimes if you read a manga series, you'll notice all of a sudden there's like a 90 degree turn. Like all of a sudden this new character gets introduced. And if it makes the story succeed, great. If it makes the story fail, they get canceled. Dragon Ball, its first two years of the animation and its first several volumes didn't have the ultimate fighting tournament in it. And it actually wasn't that popular right at the very beginning. It was somewhat popular, but they came up with somehow because of audience feedback. They, they said, we like it when Goku fights some big guy. All of a sudden, they came up with that ultimate fighting series. And from then on... Dragon Ball was all about one fight after another. 
Before that, it really wasn't about that. That was a business decision. So I'm just very, very, having worked in the industry, I'm extremely conscious of the business decisions that make or break series, including, in fact, even more so, I'm very conscious of how, of the business dynamics of Western adaptions of the series. And I know that an 18-volume series of the cockpit just wouldn't sell enough copies for any publisher to justify paying me what would be a good, like, two years of... uh of salary to publish. I just don't think it would be, uh, it wouldn't be economically viable, although there would be this niche market that would absolutely love it. You, we've, we've sort of touched on Matsumoto's legacy in Japan. And since we are talking about uh, Western adaptations of manga, where do you see Matsumoto's work uh, fitting into Western fan narratives of anime and manga in the next five, 10, 15 years from now, because we do see, we have seen Seven Seas release the Captain Harlock uh, volumes. We have seen Discotech release uh, Matsumoto work. It, it's easier than ever in the West to get the original, well, as, as close to the original as any uh, translation could ever get uh, yes. for fans in the West of Matsumoto's work. Where do you see him fitting into Western Anglophone fandoms going forward? I'm actually very curious about that question. I don't want to give a definitive answer because I don't know what the answer is. But myself, having been reading manga since about you know 1987, which is when I first went to live in Japan, having seen the manga market itself change and now reaching the ripe old age that I'm at, I kind of wonder what the next generation of fans, which of the ancient stuff they'll read and which they won't. In the West, certainly, the Western fandom. And it's really hard to tell. It's hard to tell what will be remembered and what won't be remembered. I wonder the same thing about Fist of the North Star or City Hunter, which are two series I worked on when I was in Japan. I wonder... I know that the Japanese creators will well remember Matsumoto for the next generation or two. And that Matsumoto's influence will be reflected in their work. I wonder how that influence will then influence the Western fandom of manga. I honestly don't know where the fandom of anime and manga is going to go. I, Because the world is changing so quickly and the ability to put this stuff on digital materials, which is making so much more of it available than ever used to be available, it's more possible for young people now to go back in time about any culture western culture japanese culture either one somebody can go back now and watch the dick van dyke show on youtube or on some channel and i'm hearing that now young people it's no longer about what's popular on tv now because they can access the entire history of pop culture all at once so they're almost becoming unstuck in time like the main character from Slaughterhouse-Five was. You know, we can just kind of flash back and forth in time. You can go back and watch Breaking Bad and then go back and watch The Dick Van Dyke Show and then come and watch whatever is popular now. And I think, and the same thing is happening with anime and manga for the anime and manga fandom. So I'm hoping that whatever does get out there and gets published in English or gets translated in English will then be available to fans for the next... 20, 30, 40, 50 years until global warming kills us all off. So we're, we're sort of doing this a little backwards, mm-hmm. but I'm curious to know how you personally got into anime and manga, because at the start of your chapter, you mentioned your interest in martial arts and samurai mm-hmm. uh, yeah. when you were an undergrad. Uh, how did you sort of find yourself? I mean, you've done, you've worked in the actual industry, you've written for scholarly work, you've uh, put in a lot of time and energy into the anime and manga fandom. How did you find yourself in, in it in the first place? Well, I was in Japan. I From the moment I got in Japan in 1987, I first went there in 1984, and then I went back in 1987. And from the moment I got there, I was watching anime and reading manga because that was the height of the manga magazine publishing boom. Uh, that's when the manga publishing was reaching its absolute peak and i believe it was in i used to know this exactly 1992 1993 where shonen jump sold in one week 6.53 million copies 
and that's was when Mr. Hortier was the was the editor in chief of the magazine. And it's gone down since then. All the manga magazines have dropped drastically because magazine publishing has dropped. Because it used to be when you're sitting on the train, you read a magazine. And for most people, but for a good half of the people, that magazine would be manga. Now everybody sits there and looks at their cell phone. So there's an option that is that has definitely hurt the manga publishing industry. All right. That's where I I was watching I was watching Lupin Lupin the Third. I was watching City Hunter. I was watching Maze on Ikoku. I was watching uh, Fist of the North Star on their basically their first or their second runs. And then I was working there as a I was working there in the entertainment industry. And somebody offered me a job in 2002. Mr. Horie offered me a job editing manga and translating and editing the English language editions. And this is in 2002. This is I, some people might find this story amusing. And I remember thinking I hadn't been living in America very much since 1987. And I said, why would you want to publish a manga magazine in English? Nobody in America is reading this stuff. And everybody else at the table looked at me. It's like, you haven't been back to the United States in a long time. I completely missed the anime manga boom of the 90s. Completely missed it. I had no idea it had happened because I was in Japan. And then I found out very quickly that there had been this huge anime manga boom that I had missed. I didn't watch any of those great anime shows that everybody else said they watched in the 80s and the 90s. Because I was already over there watching them there. Uh, I remember watching uh, Astro Boy, Tetsuan Adam, back in the 70s and the, basically in the 60s. That was my only experience of watching it while I was still in the United States. So I'm in Japan, and I was offered this job. I was already in the entertainment industry, and I was already doing translation. I was offered a job to work on Raijin Comics as the senior editor. And I got baptized in fire very quickly into American anime and manga fandom. I was one of my first things was they sent me back to America to go to a couple conventions. And I, my very first convention was Animazement in North Carolina. And after that was Akon in Dallas, Akon 13, I believe it was. And then I went to Anime Expo. And you know, talk about baptism by fire. I learned very quickly what a huge phenomenon anime and manga had become. And the next thing I knew, I was publishing a weekly manga magazine. And that's how I got into it. It was really was, again, dropped into it. I had no idea that it was going to be a thing. I really love the Animazement was your first American anime convention because that is our home convention. That was my first con, too. And I, I, it has a very, very dear place in my heart uh, because of that. I absolutely loved it. It was anime, animazement 2000, it would have been 2002 is when I went, 19 years ago. Sorry I've no. never been back because it was a great con. I think all of us right now are very sorry that we may never get to go back, period, uh, if things keep playing out the way they are. That's a, that's a whole topic that probably we shouldn't get started on because it could be, um, I was also a, the anime manga track director at Dragon Con for 10 years, which is something, uh, experiences I will value for the rest of my life, because that, to me, was the ultimate convention. And I'd like to think we did a really good job building up the anime manga track, which is now doing great. And it's anime and manga has become such a part of mainstream fandom in America now. Now it's no longer niche. But I'd I'd, my favorite cons are actually the smaller ones, like Akon. I went to Akon, must have been at least 10, 12 times in Dallas, Texas. I, 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 too, personally prefer... I like a good medium-sized con. If it's very, very yes. small, you know, it's it's, it's going to be a fun day. It'll be fine. If it's too big... I went to, to Anime Week in Atlanta the first time in October of 2019. And I don't think I had a good experience. Everyone makes fun of me because all of my panels were on dead air. I did a Sailor Moon panel at 2 a.m. on nothing but sheer spite driving me. Uh, and it was so it was so crowded. I instantly became an elderly person. There's too many kids. They're too wild. Look at them running around. It is where are their parents? I am. It was way too big. And I that was the moment I realized I was no longer young. Is I I was not able to keep up with a bunch of you know like 19 year olds running around buck wild. And I was like, nope. I this is too much. I do want to go back, but I want to go back 
heavily sedated um, in order to properly experience it without being overwhelmed. But Animazement is like the perfect size for me. You get Japanese guests, you get industry guests, you get, you know, decent artists and vendors, and it's also small enough that I don't immediately feel like I'm going to shake my cane at the kids. The smaller cons... One of my favorite small, I don't want to call it small, but, you know, on the you know, small to medium-sized con was um, ALA, Anime Los Angeles. I did that a couple times. And it's like you're describing. It's small enough that you will see everybody. And if there's somebody you know who's there, you will see them. Some of the big cons, it's like being in New York City on, you know, uh, um, on New Year's Eve. You know, it's just so crowded. That you just won't see people who are only 10 feet away from you. That being said, go to Dragon Con. Because Dragon Con, the best part about Dragon Con is it's the age skews way older. I'm just like you. I didn't start going to cons till I was actually over 40. And here I am going to cons and people are saying, oh, whose father is that? I'm like, I'm not a father. I'm, I'm a guest. I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm going to do some panels here. But uh, so believe me, I can understand what, what you're talking about when you talk about shaking your cane at people. Um, in fact, the last con I went to, I was, uh, I think I was 57 years old. The anime cons tend to skew age-wise very, very young. But I think that's going to change as the fandom ages. Because now there's a lot of con runners who are, you know, our age. Um, but also the, the more mainstream cons are now accepting more and more anime manga content while still being mainstream. And those mainstream cons tend to age, tend to skew, the age group is much higher and you won't feel so old because everybody else there is old. Tobias, who may be the one editing this podcast. So hi, Tobias. Uh, and I, another, member, <laughs> a number, another member of our podcast group, uh, he and I have been having a lot of conversations about, uh, where anime fandom in the West sees itself in 10, 20 years, like who is preserving this history, you know, how is... It's so unanswerable. Of... It's so completely unanswerable. It, it's very it terrifying. Maybe it's because I'm at a certain part of my own life and in my own career that, you know, having been in the fandom for mm. over a decade now, so not as long as a lot of other people I know, but longer than, than certainly the majority of people going to cons now... Uh, it's very interesting to see how they interact with, with the medium and how they transform it. And also that terrifying realization that you are no longer the target demographic. And yeah. it's it's a very strange, disorienting feeling. And how I imagined, as a 16 or 17-year-old, how I imagined the fandom going forward and how I imagine it going now are, are such radically different things. And I'm sure... If you ask everybody, like, within a decade of each other, that they would have the same answer. Yeah, it's, uh, well, and it brings me back to things like Matsumoto. I mean, Matsumoto worked, Matsumoto and uh, Tezuka, they both wrote tens of thousands of pages. I mean, the cockpit alone is 18 volumes, and that's just one of the many, many works that he did. Who is going to be reading those in 10 years? Hard to say. Who's going to remember them in 10 years? Hard to say. And yet their influence will definitely go on, even if the works themselves do not. In the same way that, you know, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, people who study and make films still watch it. The young fans have probably never seen it, may not have ever heard about it, but they're seeing the... I think of a lot of these things as like, you know, you drop the rock in the pond and the ripples just go out. Yeah, maybe nobody remembers the rock, but those ripples are still there. And they'll go off and form other ripples. And then we get into the circle of life, you know, where things just go on. It no longer bothers me whether I think, oh, kids aren't going to remember some of the classic old titles of the old days. I'm like, well, that's fine. Somebody will come up with new titles that they'll read. And those new titles will still show reflections of the old material. And that is the way of things. In just the same way that... Uh, the cockpit and Matsumoto's work reflects the ancient literary archetypes of the noble failed hero, as well as other Japanese literary archetypes that go back a thousand years. Uh, it all keeps going. It all keeps being connected. And the, and the kids 10 years from now will be talking about a series that we've never heard of. And that's okay. Because the work that we experienced and the work that with it, 
Mat- I mean, Matsumoto wrote most of this stuff back in the 70s. 70s and the 80s were was the height of his career. Some of his stuff he wrote in the 60s. And that's okay. The work is there. Maybe the pages will disappear. But somehow there will be a few old scholars who remember it, and there will be others who have been influenced by it. And that's just fine. And that's sort of the nature of scholarship. I, I yes, am is. getting my master's degree in English and literature, and so much of literary history is this thing was popular at one point, and it became a footnote in history, and we rediscover it, and we write about yeah. it again. Famous works will be famous in their own time, and then vanish, or something will be unknown in its time, and then reemerge and become this this you know, lightning rod of, of scholarship and discussion, and that's just the nature of media. All all pop yes, culture becomes high culture, and all high culture becomes pop culture. It's just the cycle. We're hoping that, uh, you know, and it was definitely under Helen's and Darren's direction, we're hoping that maybe this work we've done will spark some interest in Reiji Matsumoto, even though his, you know, the peak of his work was, you know, 30 years ago, and there's a lot of young Japanese people who might not know him very well. I was very fascinated to find out that during his lifetime, Moby Dick was not Herman Melville's big hit. It it only became pop really known like 20. It was some people read it because he was a popular author, but he's a popular author for other stuff he wrote. Most people, I think, would be very hard pressed to name something else that Herman Melville wrote. I can only think of two, Billy Budd and um, Bartleby the Scrivener. But he was famous for other work, not for Moby Dick. And it was after that, after he was dead, that Moby Dick sort of became discovered. And now that's the one thing we all remember. You know, maybe 30 years from now, Matsumoto will be remembered for the cockpit instead of for, uh, instead of for, you know, his space operas, instead of for Captain Harlock. And that's okay, too. I hope he is remembered for this because the more I read it, the more I really felt this deserves to be reread. Not just from a manga fandom point of view, but from a Japanese literary point of view and a historical point of view in that here is a depiction of World War II. Here is a point of view about World War II. Maybe not a historical, but it is historical. He was there. He was a child, but he was there. His father saw the battleship Yamato get sunk. And that was the impetus for writing the Battleship Yamato series. Jonathan, I want to thank you for taking the time today to talk with us about your chapter in the book. Again, the name of the book is Leiji Matsumoto, Essays on the Manga and Anime Legend, co-edited by Helen McCarthy and Darren John Ashmore. Uh, You can find the other interviews that we've done in the series with Helen and Darren and Tim and Ed on our podcast feed, and we will have at least two more interviews in the series uh, coming up. So we will have links to buy the book from McFarlane Books and links to where you can legally stream or purchase Leiji Matsumoto's manga and anime. Uh, Jonathan, if people want to connect with your work, where can they find you? Arashiproductions.com. Arashi Productions is my own little, um, I'm the king of a one-man empire, um, and that's my empire, Arashi Productions. That's the title I've been doing all my work under for about the past 15 years. So we will make sure that we have a link to Jonathan's website as well in the show notes. But again, Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us. And to everyone else, thank you for listening and be on the lookout for more interviews from us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.